We hope you enjoy this, the beginning of Season 3 of the Big Data Beard Podcast. Please do take a minute to give us a rating and review in iTunes. Hi, this is Doug Bear with Splunk. I've got to tell you, the Big Data Beard Podcast, with a name like that, how can you not listen? You are now listening to the Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. We splunked a bunch of our ski data. Okay. And uh, me and this other dude, we, uh, we, we provided the audience with five metrics by which to judge us as the best skier on the mountain and Splunk dashboards, and then they, uh, then they voted. Nice. I won. The problem was the crown was a uh, set of uh, bedazzled Mickey Mouse ears. Okay. So that was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, that's not... Yeah, that you you could do better than that. I'm trying. It's hard. No, I mean they could do better than that. Like who's <laughs> oh, the crowning who's the crowning authority? That's I a good point. Like I wardrobe. think it was I think it was self-inflicted because I'm you, pretty sure I you bought crowned it. Yourself. Well, because I thought Brett was gonna win, I'll be honest. So I was like, ooh, I'm gonna make this as embarrassing it's a poison as possible. Pill. You, yeah. you swallowed your own poison pill. That's exactly yeah. what happened. It happens sometimes. That's the problem with vengeance. Well, that is one of them. You're yeah. you're exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, are at Splunk Cop 2018 with Mr. John Rooney from Splunk. John, welcome back to the I love being back. I'm a podcast alum. That's and, right. Uh, and that's how I like to think of myself. That is, you are yeah. you are one of the very first podcast alums that we're having back on the show. That's I'm incredible. excited, yeah. That's awesome. So it's a crazy big conference. A lot of people. It's insane. Almost yeah. 10,000 people, I heard. Yeah. The first, first one I did back in 2012 when I joined the company, there were 1,200 people. Yeah. So, yeah, this is bananas. That was my first conf as well. It has yeah. come a long way. Yeah. We, even from the last time we were here in this facility, like, we didn't have this whole space. No, it was only yeah. it was like five We were in the tiny, little, tiny little remote Well, there. let me, yeah, blow, blow your mind. This space we're in now was where the keynote was. Right. Oh, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, and so, yeah, now it's uh, it's bizarre. Wow. That's crazy. It's getting away from us. Well, I we, we attended the keynotes the last couple of days. Yep. I noticed that, and Doug was super excited to say he feels like this was some of the, the most announcements, biggest kind of announcements. You got to walk me through this Splunk Next thing because there was there was a bunch of cool announcements. Yeah, and I want to go into each one because these are these are big things to us. Yeah, and I mean, as a product marketing guy, we had we announced basically twenty things: ten wow. GA products and ten beta products. Okay, all in all, in up. So that's a, an embarrassment of riches, and it's also a, a hard thing to be like, yeah, how to simplify that into three bullets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but really, you know, the the big thing around Splunk Next is we've been pretty pragmatic in the past. It's kind of our vibe is to be like, we don't want to get. Too Two out in front of the message. We don't want to overpromise things. Yeah. Last year when we were here, we, we, we talked like, hey, you know, when we talk about machine learning, we talk about it very specifically in these things. So we, we kind of try to stay a little bit uh, tighter in. And um, Splunk Next is really our customers pushing us to say like, hey, we're at a, we're an inflection point. Yeah. I'm sure you hear with your customers as well is we're looking at what does the next generation data architecture look like? Right. And we want to know who's in the boat with us. Yeah. So to find that out, like, what's your vision look like? What does this look like going forward. We know what Splunk is today, right. but what is Splunk tomorrow? Absolutely. And so that's really, we're changing our perspective of kind of opening up a view into where we're going from a product standpoint that we have in the past. In the past, we would wait until we had, you know, a fully jade product where we have pricing and packaging and, and distribution and reference customers, all that stuff before we tell the world about it. Mm -hmm. And now we feel like, you know, we need to shift that a little bit, let customers in early, tell the world earlier about sort of, hey, here's where we're heading. Yeah 
particularly because we want to start saying, um, you know, we want to start bringing more people into the fold, right? The, the, you know, the, the principles of Splunk Next are, you know, we want to, we, we want to bring the power of Splunk to more people. We know, you know, we know we have the hardcore sysadmins trained sort of people on Linux who know, who know shell and all that stuff that, that kind of live in our IT and security world. But what about other people who could get access to, to data? And so, um, we're, you know, that's one of the driving principles. And the other driving principles is our story around Splunk for years has been grab your data, throw it into Splunk, and then get value out of it. But people want to get value out of it elsewhere, where it lives other places, when it's floating you know, in motion, when it's sitting in, in, in other data places. So we want to be able to say, hey, we play there as well. Yeah. Um, and that's, those are really the, the, the driving principles behind Splunk Next, letting people know where we're going and then start to say, you know, with our announcements around uh, like data stream processor, data fabric search, or the dev platform, or you know, business flow, which you know, again, is not built for your average Linux sysadmin. It's, it's for the guy who, you know, or, or gal who's sitting in the office who might be, um, you know, poking that person on the shoulder saying like, hey, can I get this information? Can you go do this for me? It's like, nope, here's how you can do it yourself. So I want to dig into some of these a little bit because, yeah. and, and not to go too in the weeds, but I, I really like some of the, the announcements specifically like, so stream processor. Yeah. To me, that's one of those that we've, you know, we've seen Splunk talk about, you know, real-time analytics yep. for so many cases. And and there's, you know, there's other open source technologies yep. out there that, that try to achieve the same thing. Yep. This feels like a big step forward in terms yep. of getting processing in the in the pipeline, even cl the millisecond latency going even further down. Yeah, I, th I think the notion of, uh, again, as we think about real-time has always been uh, a guiding principle in what Splunk's done from the beginning because the problems we were trying to solve were for... IT troubleshooting and security investigation for what's happening in your environment. But still, you have to get your data into Splunk in the first place. And at the end of the day, it's long polling. And that can be near real time. That can be real time-ish enough. But it's not actually as data is in motion, millisecond level uh, real time uh, analysis. So that's that's one of the use cases. I think I think you know Eric Sammer, um, who is the the distinguished engineer, sort of the, the technical leader behind that initiative. I think did a really good job in the keynote yesterday, showing just a handful of the things you can do when you can touch the data mm -hmm. via Splunk before it ends up in a sink. Yeah. So yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Just so does that mean that, you know, are you going to limit the amount of data that actually goes into Splunk because you're you're catching things in, in flight? Like, is, is that data still eventually get to Splunk or is it is it stopped somehow? You know, again, like our customer, we're, we're following what our customers want to do and mm -hmm. our customers in some cases, what they want to do is, hey, we want to transform or obfuscate or do something to the data before it gets into Splunk and that's great. And, or they're like, hey, we have this pipeline and some of it we want to send to Splunk and some of it we want to send somewhere else. Right. And we want to be able to help uh, both of those scenarios. But right now, we're really focused on, you know, Eric talked about a lot of the fundamental problems around data fidelity and, you know, not having to deal with props and transforms uh, and all those things that uh, just make it harder to get up and running, abstract away that complexity. That has to, that has to help with the the ideas of GDPR, right? Redact, being able to redact things in Absolutely, flight, yeah. removing that PII, you know? Yeah. Because if you have to do it, by the time it hits the index and you have to abstract it afterwards, like, it's right. already touched the index. Right. So yeah, already created the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to transformation is that data is in flight. Are you also looking to get some uh, insight from that data as it's in flight, some early insights to it or? Absolutely. Yeah. So you think about monitoring use cases, right? Like the way that Splunk was fundamentally built. And we talked about this last year around metrics. Uh -huh. We had our first set of metrics capabilities where 
um, the kind of canonical use cases around Splunk are I'm investigating. I'm not exactly sure what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a needle and a stack of needles, but I'm going to ask a question of the data, which is going to bring me another question, another question. That's investigation. That's great. Um, monitoring is I know what I'm looking for. I just need to, I, need, I just like, tell me when it, like, tell me when it goes below or above a threshold, whatever it is, right. but I know what I'm looking for. Yeah. That's a different notion. Mm -hmm. That, like, the data in, mo I, I, I don't need to have that sit in a Splunk index to be able to monitor, like, right. I know what, whatever, you know, CPU usage or what, what, whatever the thing, I, whatever, whatever the, the whatever the metrics I'm looking for, yeah. like, look for those metrics and then do something ahead of time. And that, that something could be setting an alert, that something could be go to Phantom and, go, and then go do a thing, go shut down port 80, go, you know, remove user access. Any of those things, uh, we want to be able to, uh, be able to facilitate for our customers. So tell me what Phantom is. I heard Phantom talked about a little bit during the keynotes, sure. but it feels like it's a big part of the story. Yeah. But I don't know nearly enough about it. Yeah. So Phantom, uh, we acquired Phantom back in April. Mm -hmm. They are the industry leader um, for security orchestration and uh, automation. Okay. Um, and that's really that notion, the, the, the problem set that's happening in the industry, um, and it's particularly acute for security, is there just aren't enough trained people to do the job. And as the, the complexity of threats increase and as the the threat surface area continues to completely to, to, to get wider you just can't throw enough people at the problem right. and so um, in some cases like with our with our user behavior analytics problem what you want to be able to do is like on the sort of the front end throw software at it, throw math to do algorithms to find anomalies. But then when you have to do something about it, if it's a repeatable task, mm -hmm. you know, if it's something that is known that happens all the time, like phishing or malware, like, okay, when this comes in, I know what to do. Follow step A, a B, C, D, E, F, G, okay. and then just automate that all the way through okay. um, and go out and touch your all these other systems yeah. uh, in your security uh, infrastructure. Um, Phantom, you know, Phantom was the leader for that. And, and what it does for us uh, can conceptually at Splunk, which again is, is another part of sort of the Splunk next ethos for us, is for a long time, Splunk was, we've, we've been a place where you've found stuff, mm -hmm. right? I got to look for something. I'll look for it in Splunk. Yeah. And then if you have to do something, you have to leave Splunk and go somewhere else and do something. Swivel hips. Yeah. Little swivel, little, little hip swivel. Um, but if every, if all the information you need to go do it is in Splunk, Phantom now gives us an arm. Victor Ops similarly on the IT Ops standpoint right. around collaboration and sort of the, the war room management. Um, you know, we feel like we're in a position uh, because of the flow of data to then go and do those things, particularly in automated fashion, right? You know, there's going to be stuff that you're going to find from a security inv investigation standpoint that's super gnarly and you're going to have to get a really smart person in there to, to, to start there and looking through it. But there's other stuff that's just going to be rote. It's going to be repeatable. That's going to that's gonna pattern match. You say, oh, all right, I'm just going to do these N number of things and yeah. Phantom's the way to do it. Very cool. So another one of the, uh, the announcements was this idea of data fabric search. Yeah. So some of the key features I heard, and I'd love to hear more, yeah. is this idea of you can actually have distributed searches across instances. Yeah. Like that is a pretty big step forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, you think about, uh, you know, we've been around for over a decade now. Um, as big data keeps getting uh, bigger, the size of what what's considered to be a you know, large implementation of Splunk changes every two or three years. Yeah, absolutely. And so what that means is the mechanics and the infrastructure of what used to feel like an efficient federated search in Splunk doesn't cut the mustard anymore. And we realize that with our largest customers and we want to get in front of that and sort of leapfrog that and say, okay, well, let's really rethink what are the problem sets. And one of the big problem sets is, wow, it's really compute intensive to do that type of federated search in Splunk. So, so what data fabric search enables us to do is kind of virtualize the the notion of an index and then leverage um, 
uh, Apache Kafka as a as essentially a third party compute resource to then you know essentially utilize for those large scale search, and that's why you start getting you know the orders of magnitude improvement because you're you know you're hitting a different sort of resource. Very cool. And that's you know that's us continuously not being married to sort of what we consider to be the traditional oh here's the Splunk infrastructure and saying well what problems are customers trying to solve and how can we leverage the stuff that's out there yeah. to go solve them. Yeah, and I think one of the things I was noodling on last night is I like got a, a number of customers who, who have multiple Splunk implement implementations across their yeah. their infrastructure, like security, IT ops, yeah. something else, business analytics, and I've had them ask us multiple times, like, how do I how do I get view into all of that from one yeah. place? And when, when I heard this announcement yesterday, like, ding! Yeah. And so I, yeah, I mean it. It was do. It's it's been doable sort of in a world before data fabric search, but nowhere nearly as efficient and and nowhere near near as a scale. And again, the the they keep moving that we keep everyone. The industry keeps moving the 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 goalposts for what scale really means. Yeah. So when you talk about it, it gives you the single place to go interact yep. with the larger scale data. What what another takeaway I took was that single place no longer has to be at my desk. Yeah. Right, that's a pretty interesting development that, that there's now a mobile capability yeah. and mobile is connected very tightly with the augmented reality announcement. So, so talk to me a little bit about what that team's doing around engaging when I say Splunk is the single platform to do all these yeah. things, that it can be a single platform on a variety of devices. Yeah, I think that team, the problem that they're looking at um, is how do you bring the power of Splunk to more people? Mm -hmm. um, and again, we're, you know, we've been really successful and really invested in the idea of you have, um, you know, you have a, an analyst sitting in front of a laptop or a desktop somewhere and they're sitting in front of a screen and they're on the network and they can go do stuff. Right. Um, but it still requires, you know, think about what all, what, what are the, what, what are all the requirements there? You know, you have to be on a network. You have to, you have to have access to a keyboard. You have to be able to uh, have some fluency with like the search language to, to navigate and say, how do you abstract away all that complexity and just say, you know, for simple, I'm on call. I, you know, like, like Tim talked about in the keynote, I'm on call. I get notified of something. I want to abstract away all, any of those barriers, and I just want to get right to the thing I'm trying to do, which I think on the consumer side, mobile's done a great job, and all we're trying to do is then bring that to sort of that experience uh, of Splunk. And augmented reality is, again, uh, in the spirit of bringing Splunk, the power of Splunk to more people, because from an AR standpoint, you know, it's not AR in the sense of like, oh, it's a cool game, but if you think about, you know, outside of a data center, outside of the sense of somebody sitting in front of a screen or a laptop, whether it's a manufacturing floor, we talked about the University of Connecticut is doing it in a horticultural lab, um, whether, you know, you think about it in sort of municipal kind of city of the future type use cases, people just want to be able to say, um, rather than say, oh, there's a sensor on that thing. I'm going to have to go over there and log in and figure out what the host idea is like. No, I just want to see what's, what's going on with that thing. Right? And I'll just I'll just hover uh, a phone on it. So it's almost you know, it's it's almost hyper simple as well as being like really elegant and, and complex. And that team is is again really coming at this from completely new ways, not at all kind of wedded or uh, bogged down by sort of historically how we've done things. And they've really pushed the boundaries. Yeah, I, I when I saw that, I immediately thought. How cool would it be if you run a, let's say, a large scale data center to have, you know, overhead cameras and be able to look down and have on your screen seeing things, not just on the mobile device walking through it, but on the screen overlaying metrics. And then when you walk out in the data center to be able to, you know, hold your phone up to a, 
to a server and be like, oh, that's the one with the drive that's getting all the errors. Like, no. my mind started going. And through. how close was it to that guy we talked to last well, year? Yeah, Auto. So we talked to the guys at Auto last yeah. year. They were doing some of that VR stuff. But I'm thinking, man, like, yeah. you could put this in a smart helmet, yeah. right? Send people out. The, the, the opportunities there for development are interesting. And what, so all of this is about bringing Splunk to more people. Yeah. And some of the people that you're trying to go after are the business users, yeah. which I think you kind of touched on briefly earlier, which is how do I abstract away some of the complexity? Yeah. So that's what it smelled. That's what it felt like. Business flow was really about. Yep, a hundred percent. That's the notion of you know, there's goodness in the data that's sitting in Splunk that that, that right now they're just disintermediated by you know the our kind of interaction layer because it's optimized to other types of people with other types of skills. Right. But how do we surface the goodness in a way that matches their skills, that makes sense to them, mm-hmm. um, and still, you know, in no way hinders or kind of curbs the power of Splunk? And that's, you know, it's a hard challenge to do, but, um, you know, I think I think the team that built Flow uh, and, um, you know, Eric Cheddar, who gave the demo today, I think did a great job with, you know, kind of stepping through the demo. Um, we want to just make it that easy. And, and, and the idea is... Um, taking it, you know, kind of, you know, still built on the on the bottoms up approach, f- fundamental aspect of, of Splunk. You know, Doug talked about in the keynote yesterday the idea of like, as soon as you try to have like a central planning, tops down approach to the data, it's going to break. Yeah. Um, and those systems are always brittle and it always breaks. But if you if you have a bottoms up approach and the idea of well, let the data create the structure, and the next time I go look for the tr- structure, it doesn't matter if the data changes, it'll just give me a new structure, right. and it'll be up to date. As long as you do bottoms up, it'll enable things like having you know that business process flow, because you're not snapping data to a flow. No. You're creating a flow out of the data, and right. that's the difference. That's data as code. Which, yeah. So th- there's a lot of a lot of this I, I feel like was underpinned by a lot of the advancements that you you and the team are making in, in machine learning, yep. right? And embedding that in the system and the fact that you have so much control over this common data model. And one of the r- most popular areas of kind of machine learning and AI is around natural language processing. Yeah. And so Splunk for natural language feels like a big step forward in the way that, again, more users start to interact with Splunk. What's the what's the idea with natural language? Because, like, give, it, give us an idea of why the team's working so hard on that product. I mean, I, I think the, 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 the big problem you know the, the 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 big thesis around that is like you know as we can only at a certain point you can only make spl so simple mm-hmm. that you're, you're, you're still going to leave a lot of people untouched. Okay. Um, and so how do you reach a bunch of different people? And I think while, you know, as a marketing guy um, on stage, the Alexa demo uh, looks really great. I actually think we're, you know, we'll see the beta starting. I, I'm all for being proven wrong by customers with hypotheses. Right. But my hypothesis is it's going to be mostly used with text via like Slack. So now all of a sudden yeah. you have a bunch of people in Slack and be like, hey, what's going on with this thing? Yeah. You just ask the question, but you send, you send text via Slack into Splunk. Yeah. They, you know, they, they that they that's converted into a query that comes back right. into Slack. Now again, it's all about disintermediation. You're disintermediating sort of the the traditional interface, and that's where I think you know the 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 beachhead set of use cases are going to be the same teams that are now collaborating on Slack, same teams that are collaborating on on similar type systems, sending text back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually I have a hypothesis. Yeah. I have a hypothesis that that sort of um, natural language capability changes the interface between human and system yeah. in a way that I think actually makes it easier for us to adopt things like AR and VR. Yeah. Because one of the biggest challenges in, in AR is 
what do I do with my hands? <laughs> and how do I interface with the mouse and keyboard if I've got a helmet on? That's yeah. kind of hard, right? But natural language, yeah. if done correctly, allows us to then use those technologies, use those wearables, and still interact with data, you know, data systems and uh, yeah. things like Splunk using natural. The only input-output method we have when we're in that is basically voice and you know hearing. Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting place to adopt it. Yeah, and uh, you know, if I'm on an oil refinery or if I'm in some manufacturing plant, like I'm, I might not be carrying on a laptop. I might not want to like crank it open all the time and try to VPN in. So again, like you think about adapting to the environment. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's the sort of the thing about AR. Like don't like bring the analytics to what the environment's already, already doing. Don't try to shoehorn it into something else, which again is goes back to some of the kind of guiding principles of what we try to do at Splunk. Yeah. So I'm curious some of the other big announcements that you've yeah. got going on this week, because we, we hammered a little bit on some of the yeah. next stuff, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Like what are the things that you're most excited that are being announced this week? I mean, the, the, the enterprise Splunk enterprise 7.2 stuff is great, particularly for just making the traditional Splunk admin lives better. Okay. Um, I think, you know, you, you think about uh, the, uh, the, the smart store standpoint, separating compute from storage, mm -hmm. that's just good thinking. And think about the, you know, the, 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 the resources that frees up. And the, again, as people start re redefining scale, mm -hmm. making people's lives uh, way easier on the admin side. Workload management, super important. Again, it's like the having a, uh, rather than having a single hot water heater for an entire apartment, yeah. you can now say, you know, all right, well, the penthouse gets the first hot water and you start to, to prioritize it so you don't have a random bad search pinning all the cpu and noisy down neighbor all the and business. All yeah all yeah. the uh, it solves all the noisy neighbor, neighbor problems it also allows people to give uh people the same control over compute resources and storage resources as you would access control right okay. which is yeah. just again what yeah. you expect out of an enterprise pro uh, product so those things are really important the, the 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 all the metric stuff we talked about last year around again the idea of you know the same question you're asking over and over again right we're now putting a ui on front of that to make it even easier so that right. was a big part of the shipping and I, as simple as it seemed I felt like like the most excitement, the biggest kind of uh clap uh, uh, applause we got was around dark mode. And, yeah, uh, that's yeah. funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, of all that simple stuff. Simple things. It's yeah. the simple things. It's like a little kid who's more excited about the box than the toy that, that, that right. you came in it. Yeah, like, oh, absolutely. Oh, why didn't I just get the box? But, no, dark, but mode, dark mode does make it so much I know. And by cooler. the way, I'm not, I'm not saying any, the team who worked on dark mode, fantastic job, awesome right. job, but yeah. It is know. comical that something yeah. that just like a UX thing gets... Yeah is the feature that people get so excited about. But it's a good lesson because at the end of the day, like people need to work with stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and we knew it when we were, we were going through keynote rehearsals and like that main screen, Some sometimes like a really bright white screen in, in a dark room is just hard to look at. It is indeed. Yeah. So we hear a ton of customer stories while you're here. I think that's one of the great things that, that Splunk does at these conferences in general yeah. has been very customer oriented. Yeah. Have you heard any customer stories this week or recently that are kind of your favorite Kind of stick in your mind customer stories. Um, you know, I think we didn't talk a lot about IoT, and I and I think the IoT stuff is really interesting. DB Cargo, um, they're you know uh, in Germany, they're they've been using industrial asset uh, and intelligence and sort of the Splunk for IoT product, right. uh, specifically around predictive maintenance. And again, it's that notion of you know you may not think of industrial equipment as the same thing as you would uh, think of uh, an apache server but at the end of the day there are things that exhaust data that have some sort of status and you need to find out what's going on with it and i like that idea because you don't it, it puts us in a place where we're not normally thought of and so the db cargo stuff's pretty cool i like that story a lot um I'm seeing another one that, you know, the the BMW stuff is great just because you see what 
uh, and I, Dr. Bulos was awesome in the keynote, but like they're, you know, kind of the, the fact that they're really leveraging different parts of the portfolio to make sense for them in the sense that they were using IAI from, from uh, an industrial IoT standpoint, but then also figuring out, oh, you know, we really want to start turning the crank and, and, get, and getting kind of bare metal access to the, to the machine learning algorithm. So they're using the machine learning toolkit. And then they're like, hey, this natural language search stuff is cool because we want to we let people who aren't necessarily the Splunk experts ask these questions. And so they're kind of piecing all these things together. So we're learning from them. So that's another one. Like We're going to learn a ton from the BMW folks because they're so far out ahead in what they're trying to do. And they're pushing us uh, to get there. So a lot of one, a lot of things that BMW is out ahead on, and I think some of the kind of the more advanced customers are yeah. out, out ahead of machine learning and AI, are yeah. big topics. Um, what do you? I mean, AI is a, is obviously a big umbrella yeah, yeah. topic, but what do you? What's your take on the the kind of the current state of AI in the enterprises? Do you think it's like super well adopted? Do you think people are just figuring it out? Like, where do you put? I think AI it's super today? early. I think it's yeah. super early, and um, that's why a lot of our investments that we've made is um, to again, sort of abstract that away and, and, and embed AI in such a way that like, you don't need to know you're using AI. Right. Right. So you think about IT service intelligence, you think about right. UBA, like they're just buttons that do things that, that match, um, you know, actions or functions or, or use cases that a security or IT professional would do anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you think about, um, the, 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 uh, anomaly detection in UBA, like you could have someone manually scan this stuff be like, Hey, that looks weird versus something else. Yeah. Or you can train it on the data, Exactly. but nobody needs to know the math behind it. So we think early on, that's the adoption curve. I think what, what, what remains to be seen is in what path is uh, machine learning and algorithmic skills going to go into the workforce? Is it yeah. going to remain highly specialized, right? Like like software developers, right? Not every you know, not, there's no every every person knows little Java and cranks it out. That never happened. Right. Or is it going to go the route of the information worker, where you know, 30, 40 years ago, you had highly highly trained uh, computer operators to do basically simple word processing, mm -hmm. right? And I think right now it remains to be seen. We want to make sure that we at least provide. Uh, the mechanism to get the bare metal for companies like BMW that do have yeah. data scientists, people who can crank in there and get to the math. Yeah, it's also, oh, go ahead. So I think as it's been explained to me a couple of times, like people, when they, when they look at deep learning, specifically yeah. deep learning, it's like, I want to turn your analytics engine into an automation tool. Yeah. Like, I've made, I've just automated your analytics for you. Yeah. Like, and I think to your point, am I making those people more specialized? Like the, those data scientists that become even more specialized on that path? Cause I want to do, I want to provide, and I think you were talking about this earlier with like the natural language processing and those kind of pieces, providing like self-service search capabilities with those things driving it in the background. So provide being able to bring AI closer closer to people like you, you know, well, yeah. say me, bring it closer to me. Yeah. So AI, when, when people think about it, I think a lot of, a lot of folks get kind of wrapped up in this, this, this sentient AI, right? Yeah. This, this, uh, this, this singularity machine. And there's a lot of fear mongering that goes on. I mean, I think if, if you, you look in the news, you know, if, yeah, a lot of spectrums. Do you think fear of AI is well-founded today? Um, I don't know that it's well-founded. Um, I think, I think there's certainly a lot lack of clarity about exactly what people mean. Yeah. Um, and I think there have been a couple of high pro, high profile things that feel a little queasy for people in an Orwellian way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know, like I, you know, I don't know who the people who write the algorithms at Amazon, but like 
they're pretty good with the recommendations. Yeah, that's true. You know, like, and that, if you think about that as a, as, a, as a very simple and probably maybe the first at scale consumer way in which we were all exposed to AI. Yeah. Um, like, that's not so bad. People who bought this and this also like this, or you bought this a while ago, you might like this. Like, all right. But the, but the recommendation engine, by the way, I think is a funny one because it's actually, it's designed to intentionally mimic the biases of the people and the data that it was trained against. Yeah, yeah. So many applications of AI, there the, a lot of the f- the base of the fear is actually based on the biases that that get picked up. Like you think about like the, you know, when they've had these chatbots go crazy. Yeah, it's because they use the internet as the training data set. And I'm sorry, the internet's yeah, a burning trash that. fire. I would not. <laughs> right? Yeah, again, like yeah, like, like like what are you training against the data? Exactly. And like yeah, I would not. But one one thing you said yeah. though was like it, a lot of the the machine learning and AI you guys are doing today and the automation, yeah. they don't necessarily need to understand the math. Yeah, but I think some of the arguments around fear is that. People really want to understand how did it get to that, right? And I think that's that that's the fear that we have to be worried about. So I don't know, I don't know how you would is Splunk concerned or the things you guys are doing to help avoid those biases showing up in you know your tools and in your capability. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that there, I think there's a lot of um, I think there's a, a lot of tech ethics conversations to be had. Um, again, what we see mostly around our user base. Um, from an AI standpoint is the data they're training on is, you know, is, t- is, is IT data right. to, to look about system health and behavior and, and, and security breaches. I think as you move to, you know, sort of more human behavior stuff, you, yeah. I've seen stuff around like facial recognition and stuff that, like, that has like tremendous bias. Yeah. Um, a little worrisome at yeah, that point. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, uh, that's, that's a longer, that's my next TED talk. There you which go. is going to say like, awesome, we may have over-rotated on the STEM. <laughs> let's, uh, let's read some existentialism people. There like, you go. Like, like bring back liberal arts. <laughs> that's you gotta, my next. You got to put the A back. Yeah. Then. But it's just, it's yeah. funny though, because that's actually a good point. Because yeah. I, what, I, what I wonder is that the STEM thing, right? We've said you got to go STEM. But there's other emerging fields. Oh, yeah. In and around AI. So what are they? What, what do you think you got to train people? Existential stuff like big thinking? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I have a degree in English literature and I don't like, it helps me through everything. Yeah. Like, I, like at a certain point, like you have to figure out, um, if you can wrestle, wrestle with Faulkner or wrestle with v- Virginia Woolf, like it's just going to make you a better person. And, you know, figuring out, uh, four loops is great. Um, it's, it's a good skill. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, wrestle with Ulysses. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, was the, James Joyce is a thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. He, wrote, yeah. he wrote the, 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 monumental novel of the 20th century about one day and a middle-aged guy and a young moody dude in, in Dublin. And like, I don't know, I've read that book five times. I reread it every 10 years. I don't quite have it figured out, but it's good for me. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I always tell people, like, when you get into the, especially the data science space, if you don't know how to tell a story before you start doing the math, I don't care how much math you have, you're never going to come up with a conclusion at the end. I have to be able to tell a good story. All right, here's where we tie AI to James Joyce and high modernism. Oh, I like it. Um, uh, uh, the uh, Ithaca episode of Ulysses, which is, you know, basically when, when Blooms come, comes back to the house, is read in what it was called as a Catechism, and this idea that it was this criticism of, of this of this period of the early 20th century, this philosophy, sort of pragmatic philosophy called positivism, and this notion of science is the only thing that matters, um, hard facts is the only thing that matters, everything else is nonsense. It was this sort of refutation of metaphysics, and I feel like we're we're, we're creating that same and, and and the and the and the basically the 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 idea behind that 
uh, episode is like like a cate- ca- like a catechism in the Catholic Church. The idea of like mm-hmm. question answer question answer, right. and and that answer is the truth. Is there stuff that's blatantly wrong in there? Stuff that you like Real, reading yeah. the text. It's the yeah. idea of like the, you know there is no unbiased observer. There is no right. objective. Now we're really getting deep. Uh, yeah. There is no objective truth, and it's this idea of that's folly. You have you have to have a more nuanced perspective, and you have to realize that people have uh, different personas and and, yeah. and and different experiences for sure, and that human diversity. And yeah, I. Uh, I uh, I can imagine folks that are sitting on kind of the more consumer or the municipal side of the, this AI stuff. Like that's a hard problem to deal with. Yeah. Um. But I don't think Moore's the- you know Moore's theory is not going to help you with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's interesting. Yeah, because it does it. It causes you to think in that that way that is not binary. Yeah. Which is hard in a machine data company because yeah. everything feels like it yeah. should be not binary. But when we start applying these technologies outside of just the machine, it becomes so much squishier. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Well, John, you always prove to be an interesting guest and I want to get into some of the, I want to dig into this conversation a little more. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. Let's do this. So make it happen. Let's do this. So yeah. you've you've been through this before, but I want to have a little fun. Yeah. So, what year do you think Skynet will go online? So I said 2073 last time. I uh, I'm gonna say 2053 right now, and I believe it's gonna go online in April. In April 2053. April 2053. So I have a, fun, a side perspective here. I yeah. wanted to show, this is this was something brought up to me yeah. earlier today. We were having the conversation, and I asked that question to somebody, and he actually said, "Well, what you got to remember is that like, if AI is truly sentient, something like Skynet is truly yeah. sentient, and it wakes up, it all of yeah. a sudden realizes it's awake. The first thing it's going to do." is try to hide and protect itself. It's probably not going to announce it. Like E.T. Exactly. It's going to hide. Yeah. And so now one of my fear is, is that how do we not know it's already online? How is it? Maybe it's out there replicating itself like Stuxnet. Like it's out there just planning itself. And here's why. It's it's like the V1 version. Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> okay. the same way that like, you know how like robots that walk, but they walk really poorly. Right. Like if there's a, something that's sentient, it's probably not very smart. Right. And that and, the, and that's the idea. Like it would have outed itself and done something dopey already. <laughs> um, okay, I got you. Unless from a quantum physics standpoint, we're in a parallel universe right now. Like we're not in Earth 616 and it's happening somewhere else. Oh. Yeah. I'm not a physicist. By the way, I have a degree in literature. I think yeah. I mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You did see the video of the robots where the one robot called the other one over to open the door for it. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty Just good. So yeah. we're clear that it's already like here. The, the two at Facebook, the two uh, bots started, they were, they were uh, haggling. Yeah. And they actually started their own language. Like yeah. they already started talking to each other in their own language. It's super yeah. strange. So uh, in the last year, you read any great books you would recommend to us? Um. Let's see. What have I read recently that I enjoy? Yeah, I know. Uh, I just recently read Joan Didion's The White Album, okay. which is a collection of essays she wrote, written uh, kind of in the late 60s and the 70s. Okay. Um, and I'm sort of feeling this, you know, we're at this point now. We lost David Bowie. 
We lost Lou Reed. Um, like it, we lost Aretha Franklin. The baby boomer generation, especially me, I'm Gen X. Like it was this huge, massive. Uh, it was this huge, massive sort of shadow on everything we did. Like I feel like every five years, I had to relive the summer of love. Right. I'd hear the opening opening strains of Buffalo Springfield's uh, for what it's worth. Like every time, like my God, are we li- reliving 1968 one more time? And it feels like as those folks just by natural age start yeah. to leave us, yeah. um, it was this nice nice. Re- Recap as I'm in middle age now to think back at like, oh yeah, like it was this sort of farewell to um, you know this period in America that I feel like you know just now the millennials I, I'm sort of jealous of millennials because I think they're they're largely free of the sort of burden of baby boomers right and so I don't know that, like the, reading Joan Didion's The White Album which is okay. you know beautifully written and she's a fascinating writer and like the defining writer of California in the 20th century all this stuff was kind of this you know. Dipping my head back in that pool of uh, baby boomers had it better than us. Very cool. So I'm yeah. right on that border. I I think I'm like, I think I'm part millennial, part X. I yeah. don't know. I don't know if I were. Yeah. 82 is a. Yeah, that's the cutoff. Yeah, it's like, it's right there. Yeah. And I'm in, I'm born in July. So I'm literally in the middle of it, yeah. which is even more cha- challenging. All right. Genre of music you are currently rocking. Yeah. So um, last time I talked about how I've aged into ambient music, I which I've been heavy with. This time... But you're not into tweed jackets yet with the elbow patches. Uh, I'll get there soon. Very <laughs> soon. I've been really into uh, underground Scottish pop. Uh, so I like... Oh. First of all, I like the idea of regional... Um, I like I like the idea of sort of the the the, the nature of regions mm-hmm. um, in music, and I think particularly since the collapse of sort of the the mainstream music industry over the last ten years, it's almost created more hyper regionalism okay. because there are, you know like you can't really make any money in it anymore, right. and the idea of the careerism is sort of you know an absurd thing to do. Um, and so yeah, there's a collection of bands in Edinburgh and 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 Glasgow, uh, bands like Merceau and Siobhan Wilson and the and Book Group. And uh, King Creosote, and there's these tiny labels run by like these amazing fanatics, and it's just this unbelievably like beautiful bespoke set of uh, underground pop music that you know I think is gonna like kind of last through the ages, but no one really knows about. But it's happening in these small places, and I bet you can kind of draw a circle around almost you know any major city or creative city and find a similar thing. But yeah, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Scottish pop. Um, the Scottish uh, album of the year was just announced. The band called Young Fathers, which is a Scottish hip hop group, which is um, pretty amazing. Uh, no I, people don't really think about Scottish hip hop, but yeah, like there's folks like Johnny Common, there's Faith Elliott, there's a lot of really great artists sitting in Scotland right now, and that's kind of my jam. Very cool. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out. What piece of technology is currently making your life worse? That's a great question. Uh, piece of technology that's making my life worse. Um, you know, I don't. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, it's very specific, and it's a vendor, and or it's a, it's a it's a brand that we all know and love. Right. But uh, because I'm someone who cares about freedom, yeah. I also uh, believe there's something egalitarian around standards. Yeah. I just don't like the fact there isn't a one eighth inch jack out of the new iPhone, and that Man. like I can't charge my phone and listen to headphones at the same time, and I have to have a little special adapter. I just to me, I sort of feel like my phone well, grew a tail. What was wrong with the one eighth inch? Because I can play, I I can have lots of headphones now. Huh. Like yeah, I don't know. It's infuriating. Yeah, to, I mean, have to have the little dongle. The American Civil War was fought in part to standardize the, the, the width of, of railroad things so you didn't have to, like standardization like come on let's not fight another war over this I thought you were going to go sarcastic and say this war was fought for for the 1-8th iPhone jack that would have been more fun <laughs> I'm kidding alright so what is your uh, current pers- your personal yeah. biggest money pit 
Bluetooth headphones because you have to buy them. <laughs> uh, my personal biggest money pit. Well, last year I, I mentioned I just moved to San Francisco. Right. Uh, so that hasn't gotten any cheaper, has it? That hasn't gotten any cheaper. So, uh, yeah. So existence. 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 That is in, in uh, existence is my you. personal money pit. All right. What's the Geographic next? Geographic existence. Yeah. Where's the next really interesting place you're going? The next really interesting place I am going, uh, I'm going back to uh, my home city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is a thinking man's New York, okay. America's <laughs> America's first, uh, our nation's first capital. Right. Uh, in October, in a couple of weeks from my brother's wedding. Very cool. Yeah. Philadelphia. Never heard it called the thing. I thought it was the city of brotherly it's love. It's the city of brotherly love. It's the city that loves you back. I'm trying to make the 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 thinking man's New York happen. Uh, dude, I'm on it. Hashtag yeah. it. Let's yeah. do this. Um, let's get into this. What TV show? Yeah. Are you currently binging on? Lodge 49 on AMC. Lodge 49. Okay, tell me a little bit about this premise. What is it? Uh, the premise is is simple. It's magical and beautiful. The, the, it is uh, basically the story of this guy, Dud, who uh, was a surfer who got injured and kind of his life's in the doldrums. His dad just died. He's sort of in this sort of place that, uh, let's say, the American male finds himself in in sort of his late 20s, early 30s of sort of adrift, yeah. as you would. Yeah. Um, and he happens upon a fictional lodge like like uh, called the Link Society, which is sort of like the Masons or sort of like the Elks. Okay. Um, and it sort of, you know, kind of bridges the, the, the line of just sort of inclusion and community, but also mysticism and alchemy and the notion of sort of the world outside the world and metaphysics is done in this kind of languid, beautiful way. Okay. Um, it's starring um, Kurt Russell and, and Goldie Hawn's son. And it's it's on oh, AMC okay. Monday nights at 10 o'clock. And I'm telling you, it is getting me through. It's getting me through life right now. All right. We're going to check that out. Yeah. I like good recommendations. Where can the, uh, the fine listeners find you on the social sphere? I am. Uh, I have. Uh, so I, I kind of restarted a Twitter. I made a giant m- mistake in that I kind of recreated a Twitter account, except it was last June, which is when people stopped adding people on Twitter. So I'm <laughs> at Rooney Thesis at Twitter. Okay. And uh, I need an ad because I'm like under 200. I, f- I feel like I'm oh, a bot. Gonna, I'm oh, basically a bot. Well, I have seen you, know, you spend a lot of time now recently talking about your favorite hockey team's new mascot. Oh, oh, gritty. Uh, yeah, it is uh, a piece of magic. Like, if you want to like, there's nothing great in life anymore. Like we're in this c- sort of cultural, uh, you know, dull. No, because the Philadelphia Flyers decided to bring out a mascot of such beautiful absurdity, Horrifying. such monstrous beauty uh, called Gritty. Um, okay. that basically looks like, cause you know how Jim Henson and I don't want to besmirch the memory of, but like those guys were all like crazy hippies. Oh yeah. Like, like, like basically yeah, the dark crystal was weird, yeah. bro. Yeah. Basically like <laughs> if one of the characters from the dark crystal worked in a bar in Southwest Philly, perfect. It would be that. That's guy. a great description. Yeah. <laughs> Gritty. Yeah. Okay. I've got to, I've got to, you've got to go look at it. We're going to have to find him. Well, John, this has been another wonderful time to have you on. I appreciate you hanging out with us. I agree with you that this, the world of, of data and everything moving forward does require more diverse thinking. And I appreciate you shedding some light on it, my friend. Awesome. Read a book and get sad people. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.